Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we've already sung it, but I think it needs to be said again that, that we would ask that you would come, uh, that you would come and dwell richly among us. Uh, Lord, that you would take this word that is preached and apply it to our hearts. Uh, Lord, we pray that in this season of Advent, the season of waiting, uh, Lord, that we would wait as those with full expectation, that we would know even here at this point uh, that you indeed are the light who's come into the darkness. So Lord, would you illuminate our hearts? Uh, would you uh, grip them in such a way uh, that we would uh, look to you, that we would trust in you, we would believe in you, uh, Lord, either for the first time or again. Uh, Lord, deepen our dependence upon you this morning. Glorify your name. Give us this word uh, that we might grow in faith, that we might grow in such a way that it would bring blessing to this city of Santa Fe and that it would bring glory to your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is the first Sunday of Advent, and we're starting uh, with John chapter 1. And as every year when we come into this season, I think, you know, if we're doing this right, if we're doing Advent right, it's going to mess with our conventional understanding of the Christmas story. It just will. And one of the ways I think that it's going to mess with it uh, is by even our understanding of when Christmas actually begins. That's not as easy to, to nail down as we might think. It's not even that easy when you think about the beginning of your own story. Where does that start? If you were sitting down to write your own autobiography, what would be on page one of chapter one? Would it be the day you were born? Would it be the moment your mother caught your father's eye at the school cafeteria? Uh, would it be... Um, when your ancestors decided to leave the old country and come to this one. It's just not that easy to pin down, is it? Now, there's four Sundays in Advent, and this year we're looking at all four Gospels. We're kind of harmonizing them as we approach the Christmas season. And, and each of those Gospels tells the story, each from its own unique perspective. But for all their uniqueness, for all their differences in perspective, what all of them have in common is this. They all tell the story of Jesus before the birth of Jesus. They all start there, before the birth. Mark begins with an 800-year-old prophecy about the coming of the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. Matthew begins with a genealogy going back to Abraham. Luke begins with a prophecy about John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner to Jesus. But John's gospel begins in the beginning, literally. The first words of this gospel might be the most familiar words of the Bible of them all because they're the same exact words that start the entire Bible in the book of Genesis. And that's pretty striking stuff. One writer said that whoever begins a book with the words in the beginning either has a high view of themselves or the story they're about to tell. So it turns out that John, in fact, has a very high view of the story he's telling that John's gospel is after something bigger, and I would say much bigger than a birthday. In that way, it's a whole lot like the creation story it kind of references. It's, it's hard to get into the creation story. It's hard to open up Genesis 1 and not immediately be thrust into 
the debate about, you know, the age of the earth, um, about how all that, you know, when the creation started. But, but John 1, like Genesis 1, is, a, is about a whole lot more than a, than a start date. You know, and as interesting and, and important as, the, as, as those discussions may be, to open Genesis and to focus on nothing other than the age of the earth and the evolution debate and all the stuff that gets sort of tacked on there, you can actually begin to miss the forest for the trees. You can actually put yourself in danger of missing the purpose of creation and its relationship to the Creator. So, just as Genesis is about a whole lot more than the bare data of creation, John is on to a whole lot more than the bare details of, an, of the incarnation. In fact, this isn't even an account of the origin of the one John refers to as the Word. It is an account of the Word as originator. It's not about the Word as the result of God's creative work. It's about the Word as the agent of God's creative work. Notice John never says anything about the Word being created at the beginning. He says simply that the Word was in the beginning. And to say that the Word is in the beginning is to say at the same time the Word was there before the beginning. So just you know, half a verse in, John has led us in on something. He is opening up a narrative that is actually bigger than the creation narrative itself. Because we're not just being told about the doing of God, we are told here about the being of God. We're touching the edges of pre-Genesis 1 territory here so that John would have us know before the stars were hung in the skies, before the seas were poured out, before the mountains were formed, before the, the creatures were made, and for that matter, before shepherds and wise men and high priests and virgins and Bethlehem and baptizers, there was the Word. Now, John calls Jesus the Word. He does that quite a bit here, but the question is, why does he use that particular term? Well, He's already tethered us to Genesis 1 by starting his gospel within the beginning, and now he is anchoring us to that narrative by identifying Jesus as the Word. Because in Genesis 1, the Word is clearly connected with God's power in creation, right? God spoke and the creation came into being. But at the same time, in that act, God gives us something else. He gives us a revelation. The Word is the agent through which God's power is exerted in creation while at the same time revealing to us God's purpose in creation. In other words, God, through the Word, communicate, communicates His plan, His purpose, His relationship to the world. And, and at the center of His purpose here is salvation. The Lord declares as much in Isaiah 55 when He says, So shall my Word... It goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word creates, the word reveals, the word saves. And here John identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as that word. We see that Jesus Christ is in fact the foundation of all that is, God's eternal word, the one who was and is and is to come, preexistent, perfect, eternal. 
Jesus Christ, in other, word, in other words, is what God has to say to the whole world. He is the final and decisive message of God. And look, if all we had this morning, if all we had at all was in the beginning was the Word and just lopped off the rest of the, the other 21 chapters of this gospel, you and I would have to conclude that either the Word was with God or maybe, maybe the Word was in fact God himself. And of course, John doesn't leave us guessing that that phrase is not lopped off from the rest of the gospel, but he continues to talk, he continues to tell us, in fact, that both of those things are true. First, John says that the word was with God. And it's striking. He, he, he actually doesn't use some words that you would normally use to say that someone is with someone else. He doesn't use some perfectly good Greek words like sin, like where we get the word synth synthesis, or even meta. He uses an interesting word, a striking one. The word is pros. That is to say, well, this is the kind of prefix we still use in English quite a bit, isn't it? You might say, well, I'm pro-vegan, right? I'm a vegan. I, I eat only, only vegetables. I'm pro this political party, or I'm pro that political party. And in saying that, you're saying, you know, I'm for something. And that gives us a little bit of a flavor of the sense of how, God, of how John describes Jesus' relationship with God. He says he is with God. He's pros-God. And putting it that way means that the word and God weren't merely in the same place at the same time. But that instead, they exist together in a relational bond of immense power. So intense that John actually explains it further and says, in fact, the word was God. Now, we need to be clear about what that doesn't mean. John is not saying, as our Jehovah's Witness neighbors would say, that Jesus is merely God-like, that he is in possession of divine qualities, but not actually God himself. Um, again, there's perfectly good Greek words John could have utilized to say something like that to say that he's divine or godlike, but he doesn't. He puts it very plainly. He says the word is God. Now, I just want to appreciate the immensity of that statement, especially considering who it's coming from. Because there was and perhaps never has been a people on the planet less likely to identify a human being that they had known in life as John had known Jesus as God. John was, of course, Jewish. He came from a people who understood God to be utterly transcendent, so transcendent you could not even say God's name. So transcendent that one person from the whole nation once a year would dare to enter into God's presence, and when he did that, they would tie a rope around his waist, lest the experience render him lifeless. So, yeah, if you were a Gentile from the West at that time, you might say, well, yeah, periodically the gods come down and mingle with the people. Or if you were a Gentile from the East, you might, you might say, well, you know, periodically the gods might manifest themselves among humanity. But to be among God's people, the Jewish people, it is, God smack, it is gobsmacking to see that the first believers that God, the, first, the very first believers believe that God took on flesh and was made man in the person of Jesus Christ were the very people who were the surest to reject such an idea. 
And yet here's John telling us that the very person he walked with, ate with, lived and ministered with for three years is the Word. That when you open up Genesis 1, you're reading a story about Jesus. The one who was both with God in the beginning and is God himself. And John puts that as a matter of first importance. He front loads that in its gospel. It's the very first thing he says. And, and I think the reason he says that is, if you, if you want to know anything, know this first. If you want to know God, look no further than Jesus. Now, it's been said that you could take an ounce of gold and pound it out into hundreds of square feet of gold leaf, and that with that same ounce, you could actually stretch a wire unbroken over a 50-mile span from that little bit of gold. And I think what John, is, what John 1, 1 is here, what we're looking at is, that is an ounce of gold that will be pounded out and stretched over the, next seven, over the next 21 chapters so that seven times Jesus himself will assert that he is the Word, the I Am, God in the flesh. Maybe most dramatically in chapter 8 when he says that even before Abraham was, I Am. And in saying that, he not only utters the unspeakable divine name, which is why the religious leaders around him picked up stones to kill him, but even more scandalously, he applies that name to himself as one both distinct from the Father and at the same time one with him, pre-existing even Abraham himself. You know, it's been said that there's only two people who've ever lived where people ask not only the question, you know, who are you? But what are you? One of those people was Buddha. The other was Jesus. And the interesting thing is both of those people were asked the same question. Are you God? And Buddha would say, no, 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 no. I'm not God. I'm, I'm merely the purest manifestation of the divine that, is, that has ever lived on this earth. I've entered the divine more fully. I've fully emptied myself so that I can enter into the, the great divine. But when Jesus was asked that question, he didn't dismiss it. He took it. He applied it to himself. So this doctrine of the Trinity isn't some Dan Brown conspiracy cooked up by mustache-twisting dead white guys sitting in a, you know, some room in an ancient church council. It is a biblical doctrine. It's taught from the very first verse of the Bible, and it's, it's really fully, it, it, it reaches its most full revelation at this point. And that's not to say it doesn't take time to sort it out. Events of any magnitude are rarely understood right away. We're still trying to make sense of the Protestant Reformation. We're still trying to make sense of the Civil War and 9-11. And so it makes sense that the church took a few centuries to begin to adequately articulate what the Holy Spirit was saying about the Trinitarian nature of God as revealed in the incarnation of Jesus. Now, the church has had to contend with a lot of heresies over a couple of thousand years, but all of them share this in common. They all deny the Trinity. In some way or another, they all say, well, yeah, Jesus was fully human, but not fully divine, or, or he, was, he was really divine, but only kind of appeared to be human. But John says the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus is that which is not only under, necessary to understanding our personal faith, or understanding our Bible, but he actually says, you need to know that if you're to understand life itself. In verse 3, he says as much. He says, all things 
were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so, you know, just to be clear, when John says all things, he means everything. Everything came into being by Jesus, and everything is for Jesus. Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. John would say he's the reason for everything. Jesus Christ is the point, John would say. Paul says in Colossians that in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. All creation exists for him. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's like if someone was able to invent a microscope powerful enough, one with a capacity to look to the very bottom layer of matter itself, to get to the very foundation under the atoms and the molecules and the quarks, it is to say that you would find there written the name Jesus Christ. And in asserting that truth to us, I think John is at the very same time really asking something of us. I think he's asking, that being true, how will we now live? How will we live in light of reality? And one option he does not leave to us is to confine our belief about Jesus to something personal, merely personal, something merely private. We can't do that because of verse 9 where John says that Jesus is the true light that was coming into the world. Not merely coming into my life or my heart or my quiet times, right? But into the world, into his world. And I, I kind of racked my brain about an an analogy, but, but here goes. It, it's a little bit like I may have some personal opinions about Bengal tigers, but my private conviction doesn't matter much should a Bengal, Bengal tiger come into my home. I am then in the position of having to deal with the truth of what a Bengal tiger actually is, right? Jesus has come into the world. And, and the question now is, how will we live in light of the fact that he has come? You may not believe in him, but he is in your life in that way. He is in the world. Uh, it's, it's interesting that John describes, actually, the coming of Jesus, not as, as, as a past event, but as an ongoing event. Um, he has come into the world, but, but John wants us to know there's a sense in which he is always coming. He, he is coming at you, you might say, right now. And, you know, there's, there's the spirit of Advent, right? I mean, back when my wife and I were in, well, really our whole family involved in church planting, and, and we would plan these worship services weekly, which really means she would plan the worship services weekly, we, you know, we'd kind of wring our hands when Advent would roll around because we were trying to make sure that we weren't singing actual, like, Christmas songs because it's Advent. You know, Christmas... Uh, hasn't come yet. Advent isn't Christmas. It culminates in the season of Christmas. But, it, but in saying that the light was coming into the world, there's a sense in which it's always Advent. Because Jesus is always coming from eternity past into this very moment. Because Jesus has always been at the heart of God's redemptive purpose. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
Now, you know, the Old Testament can be intimidating. It's 39 books. It's two-thirds of your Bible. But if, but if you want me to simplify it for you very easily, I'll do it in two words. Those words are, he's coming. He's coming. And in light of that, in light of the magnitude of that, in light of the fact that it's, that has always been at the heart of God's redemptive plan, it's always been inscripturated into his people, it's the whole theme of the whole Bible, you'd expect that when he shows up, he would be, there'd be parades, there'd be joy, there'd be celebration. But wildly, John says his world not only didn't welcome him, it didn't even recognize him. And you've got to wonder, right, in light of the fact that all things being made through him, so without him was not anything made that was made. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of a word that appears prominently in verse 5. And that word is darkness. The light didn't come into a world lit up. The light came into a world so dark it couldn't even see. It couldn't recognize nor receive God's Savior. And we're fresh off Romans. When, when, when we're talking about this darkness, it's the very same thing Paul defines in Romans 1 as an active and ongoing determination of the heart to suppress the truth, despite the fact, as Paul puts it, that what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. Because ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature have been understood and clearly seen through the things he has made. So we are without excuse, for we knew God, but did not honor him as God. That's the darkness. Later on in chapter 3 of this gospel, John describes the darkness of our sin as something like a verdict that has been rendered upon us, on all of humanity, and saying the lights come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And yet, the darkness doesn't keep Jesus away. Despite the fact that he's neither welcome nor recognized, when he comes, he comes to his own. Uh, that phrase, he comes to his own, is the exact phrase used later on when this writer of this gospel, John, takes Mary's mother into his own home. Coming into his own home, you see, when God comes into, in the flesh and the person of Jesus, he's coming into his home, into his house, to his own people, to those who've been given the scripture which had been telling them of his coming. You know, it's God's world, and we're just living in it, right? Now, up to this point, John has been all about the proclamation of the way things are, of, of who Jesus is, and who, who Jesus is as Savior, who we are as sinners, and yet, despite the devastating verdict about the depth of our sin in verses 4 and 5, there's this transition in which John goes from proclamation, not to condemnation, but to invitation. And that invitation comes when he says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That, that is an invitation. That's an invitation to everyone to come out of the darkness and into the life to you know, to come out of death and into life. It, it is to say that there's more to life than making sure that by the time you and I get to the other side of the dirt, you know, we will have completed a, an inspiring life movie. 
so that it could be said of you and me at our eulogy that we had a good life in terms of our academic achievements, our career achievements, so that we had the right number of money, you know, so that we had thriving children, so that we had healthy bodies. When Jesus says that in him was life, he's talking about life, capital L, on his terms. The kind of life echoed in the words of Augustine who said, oh God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Or Blaise Pascal who said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by anything but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Or, you know, even through the pop star Madonna who confessed in a Vogue magazine article that my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre that is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. John when John talks about life, says that in, in Jesus' life, he is, make, he is putting a bullseye on our restless hearts, bound up in darkness, so that we might receive the light of Jesus, so that we would find life in him and rest in him. He is talking about the God-shaped vacuum of our hearts being filled. He's talking about putting an end to the endless exhaustion of having to prove, as Madonna feels, that I am somebody. He's talking about Jesus coming to rescue his own so that they may receive capital L, life. Jesus explains this later in the Gospels in saying that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. That's a reference to the darkness. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John says in verse 9 that this is the true light which gives life to everyone which means that if you're a human being, you're made for, you and I are made for bigger things than the life that we imagine we can make for ourselves. Yeah, that's the invitation. That's the invitation to the whole world. And John says in verse 5 that the light shines and the darkness has not overcome it. What he doesn't say is that the light once shone. Like in Bethlehem, where the baby was born, or maybe... You know, uh, for 33 years until Jesus died and, 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 was, and was resurrected and ascended into heaven. No, he says the light shines. Shines right now. That, that the same gospel that was on offer then is on offer now. That the light that came into the darkness might be coming into your darkness right now. And I, you know, I have no doubt that there are many gathered here this morning that are dealing with some darkness, that are feeling the darkness. I imagine that for many of us, it feels heavy to the point of crushing us. That even the notion of having a relationship with God feels too distant. That what afflicts you or me feels way too tangled way too intense, the failures are too real, and there is damage that can never be undone. So I want you to hear that the darkness cannot 
overcome the light. That Jesus comes right into that darkness. Does not burden you or me with closing the gap, but he in fact closes the gap himself for those of us who weren't thinking about welcoming him, don't even recognize him, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And yet, having said that, I, you know, doesn't darkness eventually overcome some, everything? I mean, every light bulb in this room is going to burn out. Every person in this room is one day going to close their eyes and not open them up again. Uh, we all live under, don't we, what the scientists identify as the second theory of thermodynamics, no, sorry, second law of thermodynamics. And that is the law that dictates that everything winds down, everything dies. Even one day, the astrophysicists tell us that the sun will have its last flicker and go dark. And, you know, I can feel myself winding down. And, you know, I, there are times where I feel that not only physically but spiritually to the point where I become resigned to, the, to, to what I view as the facts of life is just about as good as it's ever going to get. And I don't know, you may be in that place. So I really want you to hear the good news. That Jesus is the light that comes into the darkness. And he is the light that never goes out. And the light doesn't, and the darkness will not overcome it because the light shines right now. And John tells us that so that we would know that there is hope, but also he is conveying to us in, in economical form, a history. And I know it's Christmas and it's not Easter, and we know that Advent is all about the coming of Jesus, but John is also telling us something about where Jesus is going. In verse 5, John connects the story of Jesus' birth to his death in telling us that even Jesus came as the light into the dark world. There was, there was a time when his death on the cross made it seem like the light had been snuffed out except the darkness did not overcome the light. That Jesus is the Savior who was born, who lived and died, and then lived again and lives right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, if all that's true, if it is true that there is a light that never goes out, that in a fallen, darkened world where everything meets in an e its inevitable end, but there is a way to be set free from the bondage of decay, then what are we to do? Well, in John 7, in, in verse 7, he tells us what to do. He says simply this, that we would believe through him, that we all might believe through him. That's why he tells us all this. Now, that word believe might be among the most important words in the gospel, and here's something that might surprise you. Nowhere in the Bible will you find an invitation to really, really believe Nowhere in the Bible will you find even an invitation to really sincerely believe or believe with all your heart. And I think that's important because what we're being called, what, what, what's being asked of us is, is not a kind of belief that is somehow made more effectual by my attitude or my effort or my sincerity so that my saving relationship with Jesus would really stick. We're invited simply to believe because the gospel is a gift given by grace freely, received by faith alone. Luther famously says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. 
So the invitation isn't just to believe in this concept or this idea or this method. It is, John says, to believe in his name. Believe in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Believe in his name. Give your heart to him. And you can do that actually full of weakness, full of trembling. You can even do that with some doubt. But you can do it knowing that because Jesus is who he says he is, he will be strong where you're weak. He'll be steady where we tremble. He will assure us where we struggle with unbelief. And that, I think, is as far as you can get from cheap grace or easy believism because in your faith, you're trusting that Jesus is more than sufficient for all your stuff. And that, in fact, he welcomes that kind of faith. And I don't know about you, but I always struggling and wanting more than faith in Jesus. I want more. I've been preaching justification by grace through faith for a pretty long time, and I still have this stubborn thing in me that wants to contribute something I would imagine would make my salvation more effectual. So I love in verse 13, just to make the point, John tells us some stuff that is going to do us no good in our relationship with Jesus. No good. He says that blood is going to do you no good. In other words, it doesn't matter if you come from a good family or if you come from the right culture or, you, or whatever you imagine to be the right part of the country or the world, or if you're a lifelong Presbyterian. Doesn't matter what your blood is. It won't help you either to have the will of the flesh, uh, you know, to be a person of discipline, of willpower, of, of great spirituality. It won't help you, John also says, to have the will of man, to be a a strong person, an achiever, you know, a worldly success. What John, I think, is really wanting to say here is stop believing in yourself and believe in Jesus. Toward the end of his gospel, John lets us in on, some really, on something really important. He actually tells us why the Lord read, led him to write this gospel. And he tells us, you know, this is, this is the whole point of the whole thing, of all 21 chapters, and I would say of the whole Bible. He tells us that this gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What happens when you believe in Jesus is, as one writer put it, you are taken from the story of human tragedy to the story of divine comedy. So, for the, so that for those who did welcome him, for those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's tidings of comfort and joy. And look, Christmas is, is of course, a season of gift giving. And I used to wring my hands about, you know, all the commercialism and all that stuff. But, but I got to thinking this week, you know, in light of the magnitude of the gift and receiving di divine pardon and being brought from alienation to welcome and hostility to bring it home and darkness to light and death to life, I've been thinking maybe there's not enough gift giving going on. Maybe there aren't enough parties. Maybe there's too little singing and, and not enough lights because of the magnitude of the gift. There ought to be a great celebration. Because the light shines on and the darkness has not overcome it. Because the world has been given Jesus and with him grace and life everlasting. Let's pray as we prepare to go to the table, remembering 
and relishing and relying on Jesus. Lord, the same gospel writer says that when they saw Jesus, they saw one who was full of grace and truth. That that's what they beheld. We thank you for telling us the truth about yourself and about us. Painful as some of those truths may be, but Lord, there is such good news. You are like the great divine physician who tells us the truth of our condition, but doesn't just give us a diagnosis, you actually deliver the cure in giving us a Savior who would take us out of the darkness and into the light, out of death and into life. And Lord, I just pray for those who who are here kind of considering these things, um, not sure what they believe, Lord, I pray that you would give grace to turn to Jesus, to stop believing in ourselves. What a burden. May May our burden be lifted by our great Savior. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, who would put our faith in you, would you grow us in this faith? Would you, um, Lord, just kill that impulse we have to want to be our own saviors so that we may live and rely upon him who alone saves? Lord, we thank you for Jesus. May we worship him as we prepare to come to this table. It's in his name we pray, amen.